Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Alan Parry podcast where I talk to fascinating people and then let you listen in. Today I'm talking to Jenny Radcliffe who has the most unusual job. Now you've all heard of computer hackers, well Jenny is a professional people hacker. She doesn't target technology to breach a company's security, she targets people. And she does it using old-fashioned detective work, psychology and persuasion. And by doing so, she helps organisations patch up the vulnerabilities that most of us overlook. Now Jenny is a real master of influence, so as well as giving us the lowdown on how people hacking works, she gave me a masterclass in how to be more persuasive myself. You're about to learn a lot about what makes human beings tick, so let's listen in to the secret world of Jenny Radcliffe. Okay, welcome to the show, Jenny. It's great to have you on. Hi, Alan. Great to be here. I've I've been really looking forward to this ever time ever, ever since I saw you at Ignite because um, I think yours is the most unusual job I've ever encountered. Do you want to tell us what it is? So, yeah, so um, the part of my job that I was talking about at Ignite is that I'm what they call a social engineer. Now, what a social engineer is, is someone who uses non-technical means to hack into an organisation. You mean professional burglar, don't you, really? You could say that for hire by by companies. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm known as the people hacker. Yeah. So what does that basically, is it basically because technology is becoming so good, the criminals are having to target people in order to get to the juicy info and and you're testing out how secure that is? Well, yeah, I mean, it's that, basically, uh, social engineering is the oldest trick in the book to get past anyway. So social engineering would be using people to get into an organisation. So, you know, if you can imagine... Back in the olden days, when you've got a huge fortress, a citadel, a castle, um, very well guarded at the front gate and, and all around it, but allowing people to go in and deliver food um, and that type of thing, or, or cleaning yeah. staff in, it, social engineering would be, you know, someone dressing up as a as a delivery person and going in through the back door so in some ways it's the oldest form of hacking it's the oldest form of breaching defenses of any kind of organizational building but then in you're right in saying is it because the tech's getting better that it's more common it's the oldest trick in the book but it's also still used the more sophisticated technology gets actually the um the more the easier it is to use the human element of, of an organization to hack it so it's whilst it's the oldest thing that's happening it's still very prevalent today as the technology gets better and more difficult to get past people are still the the, the biggest target for for hackers so what what does that look like if if let's say um if you were to take me through a, a successful people hack what what kind of thing does that involve and what 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 are criminals after when they do the people hacking okay so Let's imagine um, I would a typical client for me would be a big corporate or um, a lot, you know, it's sort of a, a company that was concerned that for some reason people wanted to get into it and maybe take it, you know, financially, uh, data, information or use it as a link in the chain to customers. And so what would happen would be, and I do need to make this clear now we've said I'm a burglar, <laughs> is, <laughs> I would be hired as a security consultant. Yeah. To, to, to pretend to take on the role of a malicious criminal, a malicious hacker. Of course, yeah. And scope that organisation from the point of view of the, you know, the attack point of view. So what we'd be looking to do 
Um, it's sort of like a funnel. The first thing that we would do is we would look at the organisation um, culturally. So we'd look at what's freely available online. We call this OSINT, Open Source Intelligence. And we'd look at what's available about the organisation online, locations, numbers of people working for them, what they say officially, and then what's being said unofficially through social media. And through that, we build up a picture of an organisation's culture, um, the way that people talk, the way they celebrate, really get a feel for the type of people who work there. And then within that profile, we'd be isolating maybe six to eight individuals, maybe a few more, depending on the size of the company. We want to zoom in on and really get to know them through what they post on social media. So some people are quite chatty, others less so, but there's lots of ways that we can kind of profile them and find out who they are. If the difference between me and a, a kind of a computer hacker would be that if somebody put nothing online, we'd still use old fashioned security methods to go and, and watch them. And then using that information, we'd be looking to make contact with the organization, maybe through an email um, or through phone calls, build up a relationship of trust and then finally what we'd look to do is abuse that trust and get that person to give us passwords, let us into buildings or just give us little pieces of information that we use to build up a picture and use that picture to get past. Um, at that point once we're in um, I, we would be able to uh, take data or disrupt services or whatever that we you know we, we, we could do and we obviously don't actually do that so we just show how it could be done and how far we get um, and then it's an education piece. So what we would do next was make sure that the uh, the employees within the organisation and their top teams understand how we attack them, what information we were able to get off them, and then we educate people so the real bad guys can't do that. Okay, that's fascinating stuff. I mean, the six to eight people that you kind of target, if you like, are they chosen based on personality profile? Are they chosen on chosen on seniority within the organisation? How do you pick those people that you're going to target? Well, there's two ways. I mean, the first thing that I'm always looking for is for people who say too much online. And I mean, you know, a big tip for the listeners would be is really think about the information that we all put on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, because people who are performing my job, but from a malicious point of view, can build up really quite a detailed profile about yourself and your family, um, which they then use to get to the organisation you work for. So even if you hate the company you work for, just imagine that they're worth more than you are. And, they, and you, you know, once we know that you work for them, we use that information to, to, to get to the company whether you like it or not you know and so we, first of all we'd be looking for people who perhaps talk too much online post things do things that are ill-advised online but within that we're also looking for people who are a worthwhile target within an organization so whether that be gatekeepers so PAs secretaries receptionists often have an awful lot of information to people at the top table. So they're always useful to know. Sometimes we're looking for new starters as well. So people who've got access to information but aren't really savvy uh, yet about, you know, the dangers of being in that particular company. And we might be looking for, you know, your, your sort of big prizes would be people who knew an awful lot of information, had access um, to company procedures, so people who work in finance, um, certainly people who work in procurement and supply chain, although they don't think they do know, they tend not to be a very securely aware function. I came from that function originally. Um, but of course, they know the days that people are in and out of the building, they authorise invoice payments, those types of things. So really, it can be anyone within an organisation can give us 
uh, information to help us build that picture. But what you're looking for eventually is to, is, is to sort of pinpoint two or three people who really have access to the to the cards, you know, to, to the kingdom, to the treasure, yeah. um, whether that be financial or, or data. And we're looking to access those who talk too much and those who know too much. And that's really how we'd attack. <laughs> so this sounds like it takes absolutely ages. I mean, it sounds far more methodical than I'd imagined. How long does it take to, to really scope an organisation in this detailed way? Okay, so uh, th- this is a good question because I kind of operate in a very specific field. So so what I'm doing is very targeted, orchestrated, bespoke, spear fishing is what we call it in the industry. Yeah. So I am, you know, I take my time. I use psychology. Uh, I use lots of different sort of, sort of people-based tools to get there. So that does take time. And I typically would ask a client for anything from two weeks to six months to do it. It depends on what they want and and you know, and how how sort of urgent they they feel the threat to them is, but I have done the job. I mean, I did a a job with a, a large bank, uh, and I only had twenty four hours to prepare. So, you know, it, 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 to do it properly, I like lots of time. Yeah. But but depending on uh, the size of the organisation and how how well people behave, you can get a long way there quite quickly. So I I like to refine everything I do. But seventy to I'd say about seventy percent of it can be done quite quickly, and then it's the, it's just refining that 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 takes the time. So you said you use psychology. What what kind of psychology do you use in order to to make this work? What what kind of tools and techniques are your are, are your kind of main armory? So I I came from I, I originally as a job as a consultant, and, and my specialism was negotiation training. Um, I'd always been interested in negotiation and also reading body language and lie detection. And um, and I'd, do, I'd done my job for years, the social engineering for years, but that was the kind of what made me a living once I became a consultant and a trainer. And so the main psychology that I would work would be the psychology of negotiation skills, but applied to security. So yeah. anything to do with influence and persuasion, to do with um, motivations, uh, what people um, respond to questioning techniques um, those types of things and really I suppose it boils down to and I talk about this a lot when I speak at conferences and things it boils down to, to really three main levers for most people and uh, the first lever is fear so if you can get people to think oh my god you know I'm not helping if you pretend you're a customer and they think I'm not helping this customer very well yeah and um, that would be something you know you sort of threaten them so one of my um things I used to use a lot more in the old days than I kind of do now because um, I do less of it now I talk about it and teach it more than I do it but back in the day if I could find a help desk employee you know who wasn't giving me what I wanted it's probably because they weren't supposed to it would be a line something along the lines of you know well it's, uh, sorry I thought this was the help desk <laughs> you know do you do you imagine that this looks helpful aren't you meant to be helpful what's your supervisor's name you know, what's their full name yeah and that kind of like confrontational situation that you engineer is exactly what particularly in the UK exactly what people don't like yeah so that so although that doesn't sound like any kind of academic psychology it is the psychology of people thinking I'm supposed to be helpful. I'm supposed to do a good job, and then being sort of hinted at or actually threatened with the fact that well, you're not doing that. That works very well. Um, as does flattery. So perhaps you know people probably listen to that and think, oh, I'd never fall for that. Oh, I would. I, I would definitely. I would definitely fall for flattery. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's a weakness in me. I think. Well, it's a weakness. I mean, you know, flattery. If you you know you run a podcast where you interview people now. 
I speak at a lot of conferences and I remember talking to a friend who organizes the conferences and saying to her, you know, some of the people you get to speak, I mean, you know, you must be paying them a fortune. And she said to me, we don't actually pay as many people as you think. She said, often, if you just say to someone, you know, we really want to speak to you, we think you're really interesting, your comments would really suit our, our, our conference, the flattery aspect of that works quite well and people say yes. And I've heard that from um, when I've interviewed people about social engineering, um, I've heard that from journalists, you know, the idea that, look, we're really interested in what you say. Yeah. That kind of flattery works very well. From a social engineering point of view, it works if we, for example, pose as a um, uh, headhunter. So, you know, oh, if, if, if maybe we're going for the technical people in the organization for the real high flyers and a very typical attack vector would be, oh, hi, you know, my name's Simone and I'm calling from, you know, executive elite star, wonderful recruitment <laughs> agency. Um, we've been given your name uh, by a colleague who's recently left. Now they're on, you know, eight million pounds an hour um, and they've said that they think you'd be a really great person to join the team. Can I send you the job description? And almost nobody says no, because yeah. number one, curiosity kicks in, again, psychology, but they're curious to know who is this person who's left and has recommended me, who is the company. Um, and number two, flattery kicks in. You know, nobody thinks they're paid what they're worth. Nobody thinks that they uh, are thanked enough for their job. They all want to at least look at this job description. And, of course, the minute that they say, yeah, it's fine to send it through, um, we send a file with malware on or whatever, and we can start watching everything they type into the computer. Oh, we wow. Can look, we can look through their, um, their webcam, listen to what's going on on the phone. Um, and, you know, the technical guys that I work with, I'm not technical at all. Don't ask me how they do it. But I know that if, if, you, if you want someone to open an email, insert a USB into a laptop or pick up that phone and make a call, then I know how to do that. And then literally from a technical point of view, as long as we can make them do certain things, we can be inside your head within no time at all. Wow. So what's the, what's the, um, what's the third thing then? So we've got fear, we've got flattery. What's the third lever that, that is kind of a, a weakness in human beings? So the third, so the third thing is greed. Oh. Um, and, and unfortunately, it, you know, greed's a big word. And what I, what I really mean is the idea of getting something for nothing or getting more than we expected is something that persuades most people. So this is why a lot of phishing emails, you know, people might be aware of phishing emails, the idea that click on this and you might be entered into a drawer or, you know, um, you know, I, I'm a Nigerian prince and yeah. send me your bank details. <laughs> they all work on greed. Not not so much that people are greedy, but the idea that, oh, that might be something I, I get for nothing or that might be something extra. So the idea of um, just promising something to somebody is a very, uh, it's a clumsy attack vector. So I would say it's clumsier psychologically than fear of flattery. But people respond to greed all the time. Something for nothing Um kind of gets a lot of people and so what happens is not everyone falls for one of those three okay it's sort of like a mixture of one of the three or two or, or two two or three working in tandem and um, it's like a recipe per person so we, what we have to do is we have to kind of read the person understand a bit about them psychologically if we can from what they're posting online so do they seem to be an extrovert or an introvert um are they someone who works a lot you know on their own or do they have hobbies where they're always working in teams and we'd look to tailor that hack to that people that person's personality that we assume they have i mean you're testing your assumptions all the time and then we put a blend of those psychological measures in place 
get the timing right to deliver it. Um, and what happens is most people will fall for that combination. Now, not everyone has to. What we need to do, we don't have to have everyone fall for it. We just need the right person once. And again, we'll be into the organisation. So it is a very tailored um, way of doing it. And you're right, a very time-consuming way of doing it that I do it. But um, it's, it's extremely effective, as you can probably understand from what I'm telling you. Yeah, well, I remember Quentin Chris once saying um, a, a question that kind of blew my mind at the time. He said, if there was no shame... And if there was no praise, who would you be? And it was that second thing, if there was no praise, that got me to realise just how much human beings do something for a pat on the head, which is where your kind of flattery comes in. And the shame stuff, I suppose, is where the fear comes in, isn't it? So so you're kind of uh, using that. Quentin Crisp was kind of on the money, really. Well, I think Quentin Crisp usually was, and yeah. you're right, you know. And the thing is, you know, get someone in the right setting where the kind of social shields are down. Um and those and those things will kick in and, and people will react to them. It's also the idea of, you know, when you I obviously work and, and still do corporate training. And sometimes one of the most um, common answers to what you want in your job, people always say they want a pay rise because no one ever thinks they made enough money. They make enough money. But second to that, and, often, and sometimes even higher than that, is the idea that um, being thanked for, for doing a good job. It's very universal thing, and 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 it's and because people sort of don't perceive that they are thanked enough for doing a good job, um, they really crave that kind of um, recognition for what they do every day, nine to five, and, yeah. and because and because of that, that makes that really powerful way of getting people to trust you and, and think that you're a nice person is by playing up to that tendency a lot of people have. But also as well, I mean, a, a big hero of mine in terms of like the psychological world is a psychotherapist called Marshall Rosenberg. <clears throat> and he's, he started this thing called nonviolent communication. But at the core of one of the, at the core of how he operates is he says the, the biggest drive that we had is the need to contribute to other people. And it's only when you're appreciated that um, you know that you've contributed. So when someone says, that was a great job, that really helped me. So it's almost like kicking into a real primal human need that we have to contribute to each other is what happens when we get praised, when we get thanked, when we get appreciation. Yeah, and I mean, and that's the whole essence of everything that a social engineer would do. I mean, I, I'm kind of quite unusual that I only work with psychology and I only work with people. But um, yeah, it's it's kicking into those deep, buried human uh, desires and fears that makes people act in a, in a kind of in a, in an impulsive and irrational way. So what we're always looking to do is to get the emotional side of the brain to kick in so that reason and logic kicks out and, and then we get past. That's really interesting, isn't it? And, and how do you actually, um, do you know you said you tailor it, you make it very customised. Give us an example of um, how one particular ingredient might work for a particular personality type and another type of uh, ingredient might work for somebody else. Well, as I say, you know, yeah, it's exactly what I said. So for the health test example, you know, the, the the authority threat works really well. For your high level execs or for, you know, board members, flashy works really well. Um so so you know, it's it's those are the types of things really that I mean by that. I mean an an example that people might be familiar with is is for it from a phishing email. So, you know, there are two types of phishing email. There is the broad phishing email 
where um, someone who was trying to hack people's email accounts would, would write up an email, perhaps with some spelling mistakes in, but not necessarily. Um, maybe, you know, there's, there's this email goes out. It pretends to be from a bank or whatever, asks you to reset your password or, or, or something like that. And that what, what would happen is the people who write those emails, you've got to understand this is a whole industry of hackers out there. You know, companies run with, with organizational charts and people are paid certain ways and all of this. And that might be sent out to thousands and thousands of people, the same email, right? And what they're really looking to do is just statistically, some uh, there's going to be a, a number of people who click on the um, on the link and then, and then you know, the, the scam carries on. And the same would be true for scam phone calls, which I'm sure you get loads of, I know I do. Yeah. Um, the same thing, you know, same script, same same uh, MO for every call. And what you're really doing is playing percentages. You're waiting for the numbers to come in. Whereas what we do is... What I would do, and what what's, what's a more difficult hack to protect against from the defense side of a company, is I would specifically be looking at what would make you, Alan Parry, um, respond to me. So, for example, I know that you um, you play music, and one of your big passions and loves, and, and, and part of your even your job is that you love music, right? That's right, yeah. So the type of thing. So I wouldn't go to you necessarily with a fear or even a greed thing, but I probably talk about recognition. I talk about, you know, maybe, you know, we, we've heard your name and we've got this gig coming up. Yeah. I probably look a little bit about, um, maybe look for some of your musical influences, some of the musicians that you're, you're in touch with on Twitter um, and look at previous gigs and those types of things. And we construct a call or an email to you, Alan Parry, that specifically played into your interests and what we know about you from your public profile, so that, of course, you're going to talk to me about this gig. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Is it paid? Well, you know what, Alan? I think we probably can get you paid on this one. Yeah. Um, there's corporate sponsorship and so on, but we want to keep it really, really true to, you know, the Liverpool thing. And it's going to really support the city and it's going to support musicians and creative talents within the city. And, you know, would you be interested? And, you know, and, and really... The reason that um, people who work in security are so worried about that type of threat is if someone's that determined and does that much work on a target, you really are going to struggle to to defend against it. You know, we're going to get you eventually. Yeah. So how do you defend against it? Because I'm I'm thinking of that and you've given me as as an example there. I would definitely be talking to you. You know, if you mention some of my musical influences, you know, like we've been in touch with Billy Bragg and he represent he re- he recommended you and all that sort of stuff. I'd, I'd be chatting away to you, no problem. So how would an organisation defend against that when you you're saying you know we'll get to you eventually? What what can you do? Is it is it possible to defend against this? Well, here's the thing, right? So I you know m- more than half of my my professional life is in security and, and awareness training, and one of the 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 big debates that goes on in the security industry, and particularly in information security, which, if you like, is the the computer side as opposed to um, personal protection work or something, is the idea of how do we get people who are not in the industry, who don't work in security and don't really care about it as much as they should, engaged and involved um, in, in protecting themselves. Um, and I'm going to come to how you protect specifically from what I do in a minute, but what you really need to think about is... We need to get people like yourself who don't work in the industry to understand the importance of of of, of protecting yourself against that malicious threat by not oversharing online. So your professional profile is one thing. Um, and obviously, because, you know, you're like me, I have to put a certain amount of information out there so that, I, so that people can hire me and know yeah. about me and know what I do. Um, 
but but it's everything that goes with it that people put out there as well. So people put pictures of their children on Facebook, for example, but then their account's not locked. So, you know, by all means, put a picture of, of, of your, your kids on Facebook, but make sure that the only people who can see that are people you know and trust. You know, it, it's basic hygiene online. Don't accept friend requests from people you don't know. And what, and what the public or sort of people who are not in security don't understand is that it, it's it's the little human factor. You know, I do my podcast and I call it the human factor for this reason. It's that little, those little human things that make that are unique to you that help people make that very detailed profile and then from that profile it's just too easy if you know a little bit of influence and persuasion and psychology to get that person to trust you so there's a couple of things you need to be really careful um about about how much we share online you know and, and not so much don't put it online but just restrict you can see what you what you're putting on there you know there's that and then the second thing is to to really learn to be a little bit more suspicious now you know <laughs> You know, and just be suspicious of, you know, if it looks too good to be true, you need evidence that that's not the case. We need to, you know, not everyone who smiles is a friend. And and sometimes um, it's really important to understand that you might not think you're important enough to get happy. People don't think they're rich enough or they're famous enough. But actually, that that just doesn't matter. You know, we are all going to have to become more security aware and... um, you know, I just demonstrated to you then that, you know, it's quite easy for someone to start to, to, to find what someone's interested in, create these little bonds, create interest. And once you create interest, people's shields and suspicions do, low, you know, get lower. So I don't know if that really answered the question, but that, that's what I would say. Yeah, it um, does. It's, it's well, it's a it's kind of a, a bit of a worry for me because I share an awful lot because I've got a blog as well where I kind of just type up the struggles that I'm facing in my life to see if it resonates with anybody else and stuff. So I kind of learn out loud a lot. So I'm guessing that you, and also I accept people on on Facebook quite a lot. I mean, I don't accept all and sundry, but there'll be people who I will accept and I don't really know who they are. And so I am kind of, uh, I'm, I'm a prime target for this. Not that I've really got anything to to take, you know, um, thankfully. But you see- but you, but that that's what people think. They think, well, yeah. you know what? It's it, you know, I I've said it myself. So you know, it's going to be a very disappointed terrorist that yeah. has my bank account. <laughs> but that's not the truth. The truth is, you have your identity. Yeah. Um, you have, uh, you know, whatever sort of digital and non-digital identity that you have, as well as, you know, websites and everything else. You know, you've got to understand that the, the motivations for malicious certainly malicious social engineers but malicious hackers isn't just financial sometimes it's for devilment you know just for mischief Uh, sometimes it's a political cause sure um and sometimes it's just to prove that they can get past so you know it's not that you can always prevent it but what i think what we can all do is think a little bit more carefully about our behavior certainly online and what we put out there so that we're all more secure now, to take the example of your Facebook and, and accepting people perhaps you don't know so well on Facebook, and um, there's things you can do on Facebook that are very simple, which is things like look at your friends list. So you can have lists that says, you know, this post gets shared, shared with acquaintances rather than close friends. So you might have a close friends list and acquaintances list. Yeah. And perhaps you put more personal details with the close friends and, you know, your general stuff, the hamburger that was nice or whatever you have for your dinner, that goes <laughs> on the acquaintances list. You know, you, you can restrict what people see. Um, and I think that's really important because literally, you know, working with this open source technology that I've spoken about, this uh, open source intelligence or OSINT, we can really find out really... A, a really an enormous amount about somebody and I think the general public until 
until their daily lives are disrupted by this, probably think that we're all paranoid and, you know, that this isn't that important. But it really is important. It really is. Imagine if you couldn't post on Twitter, read your Facebook account, you couldn't bank, you couldn't travel anywhere, your cards were stopped. I mean, you were talking about our whole lives being run by our online identity. Um, and that's really worth having. So it, I, I guess I wasn't going to come on and really try and preach to all your listeners about <laughs> being safer online. But the, the fact of the matter is, you know, um, a malicious hacker's job, whether it be a people hacker or otherwise, is made easier by the general public just not caring enough about simple things they can do. So coming back to your skill set again, to what extent can you create a fairly accurate psychological profile of somebody who you've never even met? So it obviously depends on the amount of information that we have out there. But I mean, I can give you an example. We had, a, I had a target to get to. He was the CEO of a fairly well-known company. He was a complete ghost online, right? He didn't really use the, the internet or computers. Yeah. He, he used email, but via his secretary. And he didn't really make calls except via his secretary. So that would be the type of guy that would be quite difficult to profile Um uh, you know, and really find out much about. Although the fact that he did all those things actually says an awful lot about him in this day and age. And, yeah. um, you know, so what we need to do is not get to him, but perhaps get to um, his wife or his kids who were all over the net. Like, so teenagers would just, just put every single part of their lives, every everything they drink, eat, every place they go, they check in, They you know, they just a nightmare if you're trying to keep your life private if you have teenagers they'll put it everywhere so it's not just you it's your family you create like a little daisy chain to the person through their family but so we, what we were really looking to do is find out more about what he did from a business perspective and so we were looking at who his secretary was and it was quite easy to find that type of thing out um you know you ring the number online you ask to speak to the ceo you know we're not going to let you speak to the ceo so but we'll put you through to his secretary so you find out her name and she had um, not an unusual name, but unusual enough for us to do a little bit of looking around. And again, like him, um, she wasn't that prolific online, but she did have a Facebook profile. So we get a name. We know roughly where she lives. We can do a search on Facebook and we found three different profiles with this name. Only one of them in the area where we knew this lady would probably live. <clears throat> so we looked at her profile. Now, her profile was locked Okay, so she locked that down. Only friends and friends of friends could see much of it. But her profile picture was a little knitted cupcake. And now I can make some assumptions about someone who uses that picture on their profile. So what type of assumptions? I'm going to put it to you. Make me some assumptions about someone who uses a knitted cupcake as their profile picture. A knitted cupcake. Um, I'd say she's into craft stuff. Yeah. Um. I'm, I'm making a kind of an age assumption, maybe kind of late 30s to 40s, perhaps. Yeah, you think she's perhaps, you know, because someone who was younger perhaps wouldn't spend so much time doing something like that, yeah? Yeah. Um, I'd, I guess I'd have a kind of sense of her as as kind of maybe a little bit of a, a prim figure, if that makes sense. You know, maybe so, kind of prim, middle class, um, self-introverted a little bit. So you see all those things, that's not difficult, right? With no training at all, you've come up with sort of a whole backstory about this person. And, oh, and you know, we know she's got this knitted cupcake. We know her job is a PA. 
uh, being a PA means you're detail driven, yeah. organizational skills, perhaps not extroverted yourself because you're looking after someone as opposed to being the person. True. Um, and, you know, and then all those things that you just said are the same type of sort of, cl- it's sort of clumsy in a way, you know, but we're making a broad brush assumption. Here's some of you probably, you know, and it was a detailed little cake. I mean, I didn't even know this was a thing, but it's a thing. Um, so that's someone who's taken an awful lot of time to do very particular work. That's a solitary occupation, yeah. one assumes. Um, you know, so perhaps an introvert, that might suggest an introverted person, might suggest that she doesn't have a bunch of kids to look after, say. Um, and you know, all those things that you thought, we kind of make a list of those assumptions and then go about testing, you know, is this the case? We've got her phone number. We can chat to her a little bit and just test it. So things like to ring someone on a Friday night, and this is where the timing comes in, and to say, oh, you know, I'm sure you're dying to get off and and get down the pub for a drink tonight, you know, Friday night and all. And then people will tell you exactly the type of person they are right there and then. (laughs) So they'll either go, God, yes, you know, I'm going in two minutes. I've got a gin and tonic waiting for me. (laughs) Or like like our knitted cupcake lady said, oh, no, not at all. You know, I'm just looking forward to getting my my pyjamas on and having a nice cup of tea with the cats. And you see, and before, and, and that correlates completely with that picture, doesn't and it, it correlated with yeah. the picture. Now, no, you know, you're testing for those assumptions, and um, they won't always be right, but but it's a good start. And and all you need sometimes is just one or two things to get someone talking. So, so you know, how accurate can we be? It depends on the amount of information, the quality of information, the quality of our assumptions. But once we have somewhere to start. It's actually the questioning techniques and the conversations that we have that will nail that personality pretty well. Um, And I specialise in doing that both through online information and through looking through people's... um, I mean, I do less of this now, darling, because I have people who do this for me. But looking through someone's garbage, for example, and building a profile of someone. Yeah, because we can see things through what people throw away both in the office and at home, looking at what people, as I say, what people put online, looking at what someone's car looks like. Um, all these things that gives you ideas about what, how introverted or extroverted someone is, how tenacious and organised someone might be, um, their kind of family life, their hobbies. You know, you can, by the time we actually make contact, I often know as much about that person as probably some of their friends. Wow. God, so that's really kind of detective work involved here, isn't it, in terms of looking in the bins and stuff? Yeah, but it's, but you see, I don't separate. For me, I'm quite retro in terms of the security work I do, and yeah. I don't really separate information security from security. For me, it's um, the whole thing is about people and about building these pictures of people and demonstrating that, you know, slack behaviour could be used by someone in a malicious role to, you know, for everything right up to extortion and, and everything else. So, you know, um, it's really, really important that, that people understand that, you know how how horrible and how sneaky uh, someone on the malicious side could be, and yeah, it's, it's proper old-fashioned detective work a lot of the time, actually. So, do you find that this is kind of and I know knowing you kind of like you clock off work and you're not on, you know, you're not doing your job at, at anymore. You're in a social life, or you're just engaging with people on a normal basis. Is this kind of superpower of being able to read people and and just naturally coming up with sort of personality profiles? Is that something that's just ongoing in your head, you know, like the Terminator, or is it something that you're able to switch off? Um, it, it, again, I'm asked that a lot as well. But say yeah. about the, you know, reading people's faces and and lies detection and stuff. And I'd say there are there's sort of two levels to that. 
if you're in a social setting, you're sort of in a social setting yourself. So my shields would be down a little bit. I'd have had a few drinks and be happy or whatever as well. So I'm kind of not looking for it so much in that situation. Now, having said that, there are aspects of the job that once you learn it and once you, you learn what to look for, you'll always sort of see it if it's there. Give us an um, example of that. What do you mean by <clears> that? Well, I suppose the best example is lie detection. You know, I mean, yeah. when you le- when you learn what to look for and what to listen for in someone's language and body and face and demeanour, um, lie detection is not an exact science, but there are clues sometimes to, to deception, if you like. Um, and, you know, you can be in a work situation. I can be, because I, I do a lot of consulting with, with big corporates, and I will know... Um, there's been times when I've been sitting in a meeting and I've known someone's complete, you know, that something's not true. And it's not been my place to say this yeah. isn't true. So, for example, I was in a large corporation where that one of the directors was speaking to their union um, and the union guy said, but what you're telling us now, uh, let's call Alan, Parry, what you're telling <laughs> us now, Alan, is that, you know, the redundancies end here, that this is the last draft and there's not going to be any more and this is the end of it. And, you know, and that guy looked him in the eye and, and, and gave him this whole thing that this was the last time they weren't going to make any more people redundant. And, and every single thing about what he said and the way he said it and the way he held himself. And it was just, it was clear to me as a specialist in that area that this was not true. Um, so, so you know, sometimes, but, but that wasn't why I was there. And yeah. it's not, you know, to intervene in that is not really my place but I knew in that case it wasn't true and that happens in trivial situations you know when perhaps you're having a meal with friends and someone says oh you know I saw you and you you like that new guy you know that new guy in accounts you know you've got your eye on them they go no I don't you know you can tell when yeah of course you can tell when that's true when it's not true to a certain you know to a certain extent well give us a little mini class on that because I, I think everyone would be fascinated because I mean that's a superpower in itself what, what do you look for in what well, well t- as me as a lay person what would I look for if I wanted to spot obvious signs that someone was lying? With the caveat, of course, that it's it's not an exact exact science. But what are the things that, if you could give me a very brief masterclass on how to spot a liar? Now, see, here's the thing: you, you can't, right? You can't <laughs> give you you can't give you a, a masterclass on it in a couple <laughs> of minutes because it it really is a very complex thing. But there, yeah. are, but if I had to say, with the caveat that you know. <laughs> don't you know if you're on jury duty or something don't use this as a as a rule of thumb <laughs> but 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 often what chips people who tell lies off is the fact that the facts don't add up to what they say you know so so the first thing that we always say to look for is just is it a credible story anyway yeah i mean could it have happened does it make sense does what you already know about a situation does this tie in with that and remember that liars you know that the bigger the lie and the more consequences a lie might have the more stressful it is for a lot for someone telling that lie so you know if i was to say well oh, do you like this new dress <clears throat> um for my husband to lie and say you know yes it's lovely when actually doesn't care or doesn't like it <laughs> that's that that doesn't have massive consequences but if it's a criminal situation obviously the consequences of that lie are potentially huge so what you're really looking for and what's something like a polygraph machine, which some people be familiar with, yeah. measures are just signs of, of physical stress because it's a stressful situation to tell a lie. So I would say, you know, look for signs of stress, look for actual sort of circumstantial proof. You know, I mean, could it have happened this way? I mean, could, could I say to you, you know, if someone said to me, you know, you were at three o'clock this afternoon, you know, we saw you 
in London. Well, you know, you don't know where exactly I'm sitting, but we could probably chase the views to see that I'm not actually in London right now. So, you know, it's trying. It's like the facts will often find a liar out if you see what I mean. Yeah. And the and the other thing, which is the only other thing, and again with a massive caveat that this doesn't always work, but mostly when people tell a lie, they rehearse the lie from the beginning of the story to the end. So therefore, often if you ask them to tell a story backwards, it becomes clunkier and more difficult to to tell. Whereas if you're just telling a true story backwards. Um, and the truth and the facts are on your side, then that's actually quite easy to do. But if you're making the whole thing up, that's actually more difficult. So there's more hesitancy. Um, you know, they'll get off the topic as quick as they can um, and those types of things. So so telling a story backwards is harder for a liar than for a, someone telling the truth. Oh, that's but, a good um, tip. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so does it, Mayor Paul. Yes, shut up, Jenny. But, I mean, <laughs> the truth is, uh, the truth is, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, lie yeah. detection. I don't know if you've seen the TV show. There's a TV show on at the moment called The Lie, Detec- the, the lie Detective. And uh, as he's kind of, it's people in relationships, basically. They've had a polygraph ta- uh, test and they ask each other questions. And it's a bit of trash TV, but it's quite interesting at the same time. But he's there to call out when someone's lying. And some of the things that he's pointed out have been kind of, if people hesitate, or also if he calls it, he calls something a hedge so, like, um, mm. someone might say, "Have you ever? Have you ever? Um, oh, let's see. Have you ever cheated on me?" And they might say, "Not that I can remember." For instance, and mm. it's like a hedge. They're not just saying yes or no. For instance, so are these kind of things that you you look for as well, or is this something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not entirely inaccurate. It, I mean, the problem is, is if you think about a polygraph machine, it's not testing whether someone's being deceptive it's just testing stress so the common misperception is that you know a polygraph machine is a lie detection machine it isn't it's it's detecting anomalies in your behavior in your physical responses things that you can't control very easily or at all like your heart rate or your blood pressure um and you know sort of like the assumption behind that is that you know if this person was telling the truth they wouldn't be very stressed um if this person was um, telling a lie, perhaps they'd be more stressed, and, and, and because we know that liars do get more stressed than people who tell the truth. But the problem is, you could be stressed just because you're strapped to a polygraph machine. Yeah, you could, you could, you know, you could pause before you answer because you know you're on TV with some guy who's called the lie detector or whatever. <laughs> and you, you see what I mean? So, yeah. what happens is the context is everything. When we're looking at lie detection and behaviour generally, context is everything, and that's what makes it so difficult to call out. So, shows like that might be entertaining. There might be some pieces of science in them but but ultimately um no no one who works in the field with any any degree of credibility really would ever say you know a equals b x means y because we know that there's so many things that can influence it so what we tend to do is play probabilities and say you know we see you know that you know on the balance of 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 what we would suggest as a scientific opinion this this is not you know we we, we say it's 80 percent likely not to be true for example um so some of oj simpson's statements um during his original trial for murder um you know clicked a lot of flags in terms of of what we'd look for for a deceptive statement but even in those circumstances we could only say you know, this would be typical of someone who was lying. You wouldn't say that makes him a liar because the stakes are very high and we know it's not an exact science. Okay, coming back to your your skills as a social engineer, I, I, th- I suppose when I think about it, what you're really skillful at is persuasion, aren't you? Being persu- you know, being persuasive. And although there's a, a way that that can be done in a negative sense, like some of the, the criminals you're trying to help companies um, guard against, 
we all kind of want to be a bit more persuasive in our life, don't we? Um, what what are the key tips that you would you would give somebody to if they wanted to do something for good, if they want to persuade for good, whether it might be that they're after a, a pay raise for themselves and the family, or they're looking to try and um, do well in business, or if they're looking to try and put an idea across that might save the world or whatever. What kind of things would you advise people to do in order to become more persuasive or learn to become more persuasive? I actually have a little model that I use um, when I'm teaching people how to be persuasive. I'm not just persuasive, but how to build rapport quickly because once you have rapport with someone, you kind of persuasion comes naturally anyway. Yeah. anyway. So um, I, I, my model is called the spicy model. Ooh. <laughs> so it's um, spicy with an E, so S-P-I-C-E-Y. So, and I'll tell you just one little thing about each of those things. So the first thing in spicy is you have to make, know how to make small talk. So persuasion, influence, rapport building, start with small talk. So the ability to chat away about the football, the weather, uh, the traffic, whatever, is quite an important thing because certainly in our culture – and in most sort of cultures, really, we don't expect to get down to like the the nub of the matter, you know, straight away. We expect yeah. a little chitter chatter. Um, and during that time, you use that chitter chatter time, that small talk to really get to watch someone and observe them. And what you see is what someone's mood is, what someone's um, natural baseline is for conversation. Okay, so are they someone who is very uh, chatty or are they someone who, who perhaps holds back a little bit and is a little bit more thoughtful? Yeah. And once we know what that is and we've made that small talk, and by the way, also, as a lie detector, just, just to, to throw this in, you also know what someone's like when they've no reason to lie to you and not under any stress because yeah. they're just chatting about the weather, right? And then once you get that, um, we come to the P, which is we pace them. Um, um, pacing is a term what, what, by which I mean... You don't, you, if you're very happy and enthusiastic against someone who's perhaps feeling a bit down or is, is a bit slower, you're going to not get that rapport and it's going to be difficult to persuade them to do anything. So we sort of match the mood a little bit. We pace how they feel and we kind of alter our mood or at least alter our mood to kind of complement theirs or at least not to massively clash with theirs. Yeah. So that's the S and the P. And then the I, and this is something that I use a lot when I've coached people. Um, and when I talk about negotiation and how good we can be, you know, as persuaders in negotiation terms, the I in spicy is for interest. And by which I mean to be good at my job and to be good at all at persuading people, influencing other people or anything along those lines, you have to be genuinely interested in that person. And and, and to be an interesting person, you have to be interested in others. Now, coming from someone who specialises in working with people, I guess I would say that. And it sounds so obvious, but I think everyone's in their own little bubble. And we're more interested in what's happening to us and our problems and our lives and our perspective in a situation. Naturally, we are than that of the other person or people that we're with. If you you can... Sorry, go, go on. on. Yeah, no, go on. Karen. Well, I was going to ask you, do you ever find that difficult? Because sometimes I notice that people are just, I know they're interested in, in like, you know, predominantly something that... It's really quite dull to me, and then it's a challenge, then, isn't it, to to really become interested in in a genuine way in something that doesn't really hold. How, how do you how do you handle that sort of situation? Well, well, the thing is, you know, everyone has a story, and everyone 
you know, responds well to someone who's genuinely interested in, in that story. And I mean, yeah. as someone who, who's been a trainer for more years than I care to remember, you know, I very much do know what you're talking about. I had a guy once, um, and I'll change just a few details of this so that nobody could ever identify him, but he was on a course with me. Yeah. And I was talking about this very point, and I said, look, you know, you've got to be interested in other people. Everyone is interested, and at some level, people have got backstories, they've got troubles they're coping with, they've got ambitions and dreams. If you can really look at look for the, that in people, you'll find the thing that's interesting about that person, and then they open up, and then it's not an effort anymore. And this guy put his hand up, and he said, actually, can I just say I'm not interested at all? Yeah. Which, which, to be honest, is interesting in itself, right? It is, isn't it? Yeah. That, that on its own. But, but he said, no, no, I'm not interested. And he, and he bought a very specific type of um, wall covering, shall we say, uh, building material, really. Yeah. Um, and he was the world's leading expert on this one thing. So he's very well paid, extremely well traveled. But he, he, all he cared about and all he could speak about was this one sort of building material. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and that in itself, you know, if you're not interested in that trade, if you're not in that sector, that would, you would imagine he was right in some ways that he perceived himself to be very boring and therefore he thought everyone thought he was boring. But, but what you have to understand is you've got to get beneath that position, get beneath the story. So, you know, what, what led you to be to have such in-depth expertise at something so niche and, yeah. you know, and, and, and what are the difficulties of, about being such an expert in that? And, and what's you know, it like to travel around the world and all that sort of stuff? But to tra- but not just to travel around the world. It's, it's This is what I'm saying. It's this deeper level. Yeah. Not just what's it like to travel around the world, but what's it like to travel around the world with the only goal in his head is to get hold <laughs> of this stuff. Right, you know, for someone to be so, so sort of single-minded and focused on it is actually really interesting, <laughs> and, and 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 you know, and and you have to to be good with people. You really do have to be interested in other people more than yourself. It's a difficult thing to do, but what, but but on the level of just being more persuasive, and the level of just sort of um, creating that rapport with people, that shouldn't be such a big ask. Yeah, you know, what you need is some, you know, don't if you feel like, oh my god, you know, I think this person might be quite boring. Don't do it off the cuff. Plan what you're going to do. You know, I'm really interested in finding out more about what they do. And, and, and more than anything, why people do it. Why they're so passionate about this. Why they care about this so much. Um, and people will respond then. And, and then what you what, what happens next is you come to that C in that spicy acronym. Yeah. Because what you find is common ground. Ah. And, and human beings tend to find common ground wherever they go. We look for it. It's called the harmony principle. We look for it. We try and find something about someone that we've got in common because we want we're a social animal. We want to feel like we belong and that we know each other and therefore we can trust each other a little bit more. And so that interests the conversation about what's that person, what motivates this person? You know, what are they looking to achieve? What does their future look like? What do their past look like? And you find the thing that they they want to talk about and then that people tend to open up find the common ground and then you come to the e and spicy and you find empathy with whatever it is that common ground is so whether you could say well i I can possibly identify with someone who so single-mindedly pursued this you know this building material as part of his job but but you know you might find find empathy that 
with him that he finds it hard to talk about that because it's a passion no one else shares or you might you might find empathy with the fact that he has to travel a lot for his job or that he's shy to talk about it but you'll find something that you can empathize with tell me what you mean by empathy in terms of the way you're thinking of it i think empathy is really huge you see which is why i'd quite like to drill down on this how how do you mean in when you think in terms of empathy what you when I well, in this model particularly and in terms of rapport building and persuasion, what I mean is something that doesn't drive uh, something that makes them feel as if you understand them. Yeah. Right. It's expressed empathy, not that it's fake, but you express you find something that you can identify with and you express that empathy. So, for example, if we were talking about something like a crisis or even a criminal negotiation. And, you know, you've got a, a hostage negotiator speaking to criminals in a bank or something like that. You know, even if they can only say, you know, I understand that you must be tired and hungry right yeah. now, you know, or you must be in pain right now because perhaps they've been injured. You know, it's that type of even at the most basic small level, something that, that, that puts you on the same level as them as a human being. And often if there's nothing else, it's physical, you know, oh, it's quite cold in here or it's uncomfortable or, yeah. but, but you bring people together by showing that A, you're listening, B, you've got something in common and, and that you, you know, you understand, I understand this must be making you feel tired or I understand that you must be hungry and, you know, and, and, and uncomfortable right now. Can, can and, I and, just, can I just ask something? Let's say empathy wasn't in there because there's like six steps, isn't there? Yeah. How would this work if there was only five, if you spelled spicy just with the Y and not with the EY? So without without empathy, it, it still works. But what you're looking to do, because I come from this, from what we would call in security, white hat. So I come from, from a place of trying to help people as opposed to trying to manipulate people. If you don't look for empathy, you can still absolutely persuade and manipulate somebody. But it comes from a less sincere place. It comes from a, a malicious place often. It comes from a place of wanting to control somebody else. And the problem with that is, first of all, um, that's not a nice place to come from. And it, and it only creates negativity in some way. But also people sense it. So people, you know, if you're trying to get somebody to... Um, to listen to you or to perhaps move from a position that they're entrenched in, you know, and you don't throw empathy into that mix, then what happens is they can see that you're still only coming at it from your own ends, from, yeah. from, from trying to achieve something for yourself. So it comes off as less sincere and people don't always, can't always label it, but they do know when someone genuinely cares about them or when someone genuinely doesn't. Um, so the empathy adds integrity, I think. Well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm talking about empathy a lot, as I say, because I, I think it's huge and it's interesting that it follows common ground because I think empathy is is kind of the most powerful common ground there is. A few episodes ago on this show, uh, I deliberately had a conversation with someone who is polar opposite in terms of political outlook. I, know, I saw you shout about that on social yeah. media. I'm dying to listen to it. Well, what I tried to do there was was lead with empathy and rather than focusing on what she thought and what I thought, try and find empathy and when I did that, what I noticed was there was an enormous amount of common ground in terms of what I might call the needs level. So we, we both shared the same needs. We were using different strategies and had different ideas as to how to meet those needs. But at the needs level, there was no conflict. There was only common ground. And I only reached that common ground, I think, because I deliberately set myself the task of having this comp a conversation on an empathic level. Mm. It's true, and and so I think what what you what you find it's such an important thing, um, to try to try and 
it doesn't mean you have to agree with someone. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that you have to even sympathise with the position they're in. But you have to try and, 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 and I say this in my negotiation training sometimes, you just have to see what they see for a few minutes, walk, walk a mile in their shoes, if you like. Um, and you can only change someone's mind if you're somewhat in it. Yeah. So you need to become, um, to get someone into their minds. And that's what the why is. The why is for you and them. You know, you have to almost switch roles a little bit and say, if I was this person, what would I see? And what really would I be motivated by? And if you can put all of that together in that model, it's a very persuasive model, both in terms of the workplace and beyond, and in terms of personal influence and persuasion as well. And, and, and what you said to me sort of sort of earlier is true. It is all about persuasion, but it's more than that. Social engineering really is about trust. It's about getting people to trust you in in, in in some cases when they absolutely shouldn't, but then being able to di- being able to dissect that and take that back to the company and say, this is why this person trusted me and this is what we need to do to kind of prevent that happening with a real criminal or a really bad guy. Yeah. So, yeah, that's was the, was the why, yes. Uh, was it was the why you and them, did you say, or was it you in them, as in you walking in their shoes? No, so, so you and them, you know, you walking in their shoes, it's yeah. about you lowercase and them uppercase and that's really what i say you know caps lock on them because see it from their point of view and you're more likely to get what you want so in terms of some of your kind of best break-ins if i'm thinking in terms of some of your war stories because you when you spoke at the ignite event which is where i i first encountered you you shared some of your best break-ins didn't you i wondered if you fancy doing that (laughs) <laughs> so I, I, I mean I can, I'm going to list them as opposed to going into too much detail because yeah. I've spoken about some of them before a lot I mean from the security side you know there's loads of stuff out there about me but um, I suppose the most famous one we got you know got into the Tower of London <laughs> um, didn't break into any, anything dangerous in the Tower of London what I mean is I was loose in the Tower of London without a bag check um, yeah. without anybody really looking at what I was doing or where I was going um, so sort of unauthorised access really and unchecked access even though I was down on the list to be there that day it still was more than we should have taken but yeah there's loads of things we um <clears throat> I'm just thinking, you know, obviously uh, various music festivals. Uh, and this is back in the day before I was hired to do it. So, you know, I'm just want to put the disclaimer in for legal reasons that <laughs> I could just be I could just be making these up because they're great stories, right? Yeah. Um but no, you know, um office buildings, zoos, fairgrounds, music events, um and certainly and this, is this before you were hired, did you say, some of these places? Yeah, because so I kinda I kind of What were you doing? It. Were you just doing this for fun? <laughs> I was kind of well. To, well, you see, this gets back to the motivation thing. Yeah. Um. It started off sort of a bit naturally, really. I mean, we, we were all kind of um, growing up in Liverpool in sort of the seventies and eighties, and not having an awful lot to do. But there was an awful lot of abandoned buildings and half-empty buildings that were just interesting. That's and I mean, right. I, you know, it wasn't that we ever really, you know, took anything or caused any damage. We just wanted to look around, and you start to build this quote-unquote specific set of skills, <laughs> um, you know, and that kind of and an interest in just seeing. You know how far you could get inside a building. It's almost like an onion. Oh, so it's like an onion. You know which layer can you get into? You've got your outer perimeter security, and then the inner perimeter, and then how far can you go? And it amazed me from an early age how easy it was to stop people. You know, from from locking a door, for example, with just a notice saying, "Please don't lock the door," or yeah. or you know, to to carry something through a door and look innocent. 
and people had let you through, you know, really into some quite, you know, significantly private areas of, of almost anywhere. And I guess as I got older, um, I still did that. I used to take some photographs um, with, with the guys, uh, Airbex Group, which is uh, urban exploration we call Beauty and Decay. And they take photographs of buildings that are abandoned. Um, I think there's a guy called David Woods on Twitter, whose Twitter handle I forget, but he, he takes brilliant photographs of Liverpool buildings um, that are locked and abandoned, but he's inside the building taking photographs, for example, of the river from through a cracked window or... <laughs> you know things like that and, yeah. and, and and i was really into that and so but you have to learn things during the course of doing that um like you know you need to learn how to pick a lock and then put it back together again layouts of buildings and also persuasion and influence of security people um and i learned some legal stuff and bits and pieces and then the career kind of complemented that because i was dealing in influence and persuasion anyway and so some of you know we i've kind of been in more places than you might imagine all over the world just kind of to see if I could do it just because as a as a speaker and as a trainer I was always all over the world in hotels and conference centers and you know all sorts of places and it was always just can I go further than I'm supposed to be you know can I have a look at what's happening in the next room yeah or or you know can I just nose around a little bit <laughs> and um and it never occurred to me for a very long time that this, this would be something that could be I would be paid to do and be a career so how did but, that happen what what happened where you actually pivoted into doing that professionally so I'd been hired to do it by a few organizations who I was in um doing some training about people skills and persuasion and it sort of spoke kind of um not in too much detail about the fact that I kind of did this and used this to get past receptionists and and so on into buildings and a couple of the clients that I was working with as a trainer said well you know I think you couldn't get past our receptionist you know she's she's ferocious she's a rottweiler (laughs) Uh, could you try Um, and I sort of done a few of those sort of for nothing and then and one company had asked me to do it and then next thing you know I get this um my daily rate as a consultant um pops up in my bank account and it was for my, me doing this you know quote unquote pen test and they said sorry we didn't get a quotation off you but we know it took you two days so we paid you for two days and thanks yeah. very much and we're patching the the vulnerability and then um a couple of and then once that once that had happened i sort of said to people my other clients well if you want me to do this um you know i can do it and test your security if you like and i mean i didn't I still didn't really put a put a name or a label on it um, and then I was speaking at a big conference um, about piracy and I was talking about negotiation and other things because I still do, even now, um, speak about my other areas of specialism, a completely non-security related event. And they said, look, we need we need someone to do a job for us on Friday. Can you do it? And I said yes. And um, as soon as I said yes, we just exploded in the industry. It was someone who did it, who did it really well, who didn't use the tech could I talk about it at a couple of conferences? And I did, and then it sort of went from there. But it's quite recent that I came out and said I did it because I just didn't really understand the demand for it and that it was out there in the industry. And and crucially, I had never labelled it social engineering. So I'd never looked it up online or really seen anything about it. I was still just busy getting on with it and doing it for a living until someone pointed out, actually, you're called a social engineer and you can be paid to do the job so so that's what happened well it sounds a ton of fun is it a ton of fun sometimes i mean I, I, like i said i do less of it now it's, it's pretty much a young person's game yeah. i mean you know you know you, you do have to be fitter than i am now to sort of climb over fences and things and do all of that <laughs> so so there is some of that um 
it can be it can be the adrenaline rush from doing this type of thing is is quite significant and you know and and the kind of the rush that you get the pleasure that you get from breaching somewhere certainly when i was younger was great you know loved it i think now um what always strikes me is the consequences of what we're doing and what a lot of people who do my job or similar jobs within the industry there's sort of a smugness about well you know what we managed to fool that security guard or we managed to fool yeah. that receptionist and we got past and that company's been breached and what what i always see and i've seen because i've been doing it for so long is is the aftermath of someone who's been conned yeah you know and we've had security guards and receptionists want to resign and very very upset about the fact that you know they've let the company down they've let themselves down they look stupid yeah and, and in fact they're not stupid they've just been fooled by a professional con, con artists which we all will be yeah um and so and so i think whilst the job job itself can be fun i think i think now i'm really you know an expert in it and i've done it for so long i think i think the main thing is the reco- to recover the people that you fooled is stops it being fun because at the end of the day social engineering unlike computer hacking always has a victim who's directly in yeah. the front line of that con and unless that person's really carefully handled psychologically and everything else um that can have really serious consequences so so yes it's fun but it's also really serious at the same time and i suppose that's one of the sad consequences of all this kind of security is that we you know, the way we get done is by being trusting. And trusting is a nice thing to be, isn't it? And and we have to kind of drop that to an extent in order to be less vulnerable to, to these kind of malicious attacks. Do you know, here's the thing, Grace. I was talking to a friend of mine um, just last week and I spoke about so, someone, t- I, people copy what I used to, you know, a couple of years old material and stuff keeps reappearing on the circuit. And I was talking about this and I said, you know, I think I'm paranoid. And my friend who isn't a security specialist said, of course you're paranoid, Jenny. You're insecurity. You teach people yeah. to be paranoid. Yes, you're completely paranoid. <laughs> and it was, it was funny to me that he said that. And, and what I'd say is, linking to what you've just said, if you were in the security industry, the question would be, you're not paranoid enough. You know, are you even paranoid enough? If we're outside the industry, the sad truth is, and I've been interviewing, you know, dozens of security experts and, and people, behavioural experts for, for my podcast, and, and the truth of the matter is we are all going to have to become more suspicious, more security aware, and a little bit less trusting. And that is an incredible shame. But we are not living in the world that we were living in even three years ago. Um, just this week, you know, if, we, if, we, if I just say names to you like Tesco, MailChimp, TalkTalk, uh, Ashley Madison, you know, all these hacks, um, th- these are the ones you hear about. You will yeah. hear more and more and more about companies being hacked, about identity theft, about individuals being targeted. Unfortunately, to stay safe, we're all going to have to be a little bit less trusted in the future. It's a shame, but I'm afraid that's the way we're living in. I've just got one more question before I let you go. You gave me three different tools, really, that you use earlier on. It was fear and flattery and greed. If you're only ever allowed one tool going forward out of those three, which would be the one that you'd take with you? Fear. Because everybody's got something that they like to keep private or they wish to protect. And unfortunately, if you really want me to, you know, expose the dark side of what I do, everyone's scared of something, Alan. And that's what we'd use. If you had nothing else, we'd get you on something that you were frightened of. Well, I think that's what every politician seems to be doing these days as well. So it's very powerful, isn't it? It is. But just before you go, is there 
Um, where, where can people find you if they want to hire you? And also, you you mentioned you have a podcast as well. So tell me about the podcast and where people can find that. And I can put all that in the show notes too. Oh, brilliant. Well, we, I'm easy to find. Um, so my website's just my name. So www.jennyradcliffe.com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter as Jenny underscore Radcliffe. And so I put up uh, information about when I'm doing speaking engagements or uh, articles that have been written about me or with me all go up on there. Um and the podcast is on iTunes as The Human Factor. And you'll see uh, there's logos sort of similar to my logo on my website. It's like a blue brain and um, with Human Factor in black. And we're actually doing very well, Alan. We're, we were, in, we're in and out of the top 10 in our category. Wow. Um, which is pretty good because we've only been going for about a month. It's amazing. But, um, but, and the Human Factor podcast is basically similar to this format with yourself. I'm interviewing. I basically decided to interview my contact list from the security industry so people who are have been in the industry a long time and i want them to talk to not just security people but people who are interested in in human vulnerabilities and this human factor how would it contribute to being hacked or to to, to companies being hacked what could they do to prevent it and you know from from nearly 20 years on the speaking circuit i have a pretty impressive contact sheet so what i've got is really interesting people experts in <clears throat> everything from lie detection to password security um <coughs> sorry to journalists and so forth um talking to me about how they use social engineering in their lives what you can do to prevent yourself being hacked uh, what you can do to spot you know things in people's faces just same similar questions that you're asking me um and it's called the human factor and every interview so, you know we're talking about an hour long or so on um, and people are just loving it. So um, that sounds, for, that for sounds fascinating. It. No, it sounds fascinating. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> people will be uh, over and, and, and subscribing to that. Um, I've got that as well. I've listened to the first first half of the first one in my research for this, and it's a, it's a really interesting show. So I'd recommend it too. Is there anything before we close that you'd like to add that I've that you've not been able to say so far, or that I've not asked you anything at all that you can kind of think of to close with? No, I, th- I mean, I think I've sort of said it all. I mean, I mean, I never thought that I'd become an evangelist for people being more secure online. Um, and I know that I sound, you know, people will be listening to this perhaps and thinking, well, you know, she works in security, so she's paranoid, like my friend said. <laughs> um, and that this all sounds a little bit James Bond, a little bit far-fetched. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're all vulnerable these days to these types of things. But that protecting yourself from it isn't that difficult. You know, change your passwords frequently or use password managers so people can't hack your accounts and you know just remember that you everyone is worth hacking everybody's got something they want to protect so protect yourself you'll protect your organizations you work for um just by default if you protect yourselves so you know it's really really important to understand that people are out there to manipulate you and don't let them and that and that's all i'd say i mean i've said it before but it's worth saying again well, thanks very much for coming on the show. I was I was really delighted when you said yes. I wasn't sure that you whether you would or not, so I was really made up when you said so. And I've been looking forward to this interview for ages, and I've really, really enjoyed talking to Jenny. So, so basically, thanks very much for coming on. Well, thank you. Well, always happy to help a fellow Scouser, podcaster, <laughs> and Ignite fan. No problem at all. Great to talk to you. So a big thank you to Jenny Radcliffe for a unique look inside a very secret world. And thanks too for giving us the spicy formula to being more persuasive in life ourselves. If you'd like to know more about Jenny and her work, you can find her at JennyRadcliffe.com or on Twitter at Jenny underscore Radcliffe. 
And if you want more of this topic, get over to iTunes and check out her own podcast, The Human Factor, which is a great, great listen. And speaking of iTunes, why not head over and give the Alan Parry podcast a juicy five-star review too, because that's a really easy way to make my day. I'm sure you've enjoyed this interview with Jenny, so don't keep it to yourself. Please tell all your friends by sharing it on social media. And you can make sure you never miss a show again by subscribing to the show. It's completely free. You'll find all the details, as well as today's show notes, over at alanparry.com, that's A-L-U-N, where you'll find all of my past shows and my blog writings too. Now remember, the show goes out every other Tuesday, so make a note in your diary, and thanks for listening.